Mark chapter 10, verse 35 is, is sort of the theme of the whole book. There's sort of two high points in Mark. One is Mark chapter 8, where Peter confesses, I think it's verse 29, where he says, he says, who do they say that I am? And he says, you are the Christ. And that's, that's a high point of the book. Another high point, and really the theme of the book, is t uh, chapter 10, verse uh, 45, and, uh, where he says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. So we've seen that Jesus is indeed the suffering servant over and over again. That is the picture that is painted so vividly, especially in Mark's gospel. I'll read that again. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. And then another verse I want to read is Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. We've read this a few times also recently in the last few weeks. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So keep those verses in mind, uh, speaking mainly about servanthood and about serving others. And Jesus is obviously the high, grand example for us. If in the section we're going to read now, verses uh, 30 through 50 of chapter 9, just look at it briefly here. I just want to point out a few things before I read it. You'll see that basically the disciples are, st are still not understanding Jesus' <coughs> mission yet. In verse 32, you see he tells them that he's going to die. They don't understand it. After that, he finds them talking among themselves about something that is about themselves, and it is very self-centered. In verse 34, you read, they're asking each other, basically, who is going to be the greatest in your kingdom? And obviously, they want to be greatest in his kingdom. They're arguing among themselves, who is going to be the biggest? Who is going to be the greatest? And they have self-righteousness, and you see that in verse 38, when they are not understanding exactly why someone else outside their group could be doing something in Jesus' name, like casting out demons. So they have a self-righteous attitude. So pay attention to that when I read it. And then you'll also see Jesus is teaching to them on these points. Number one, he's going to die and raise on the third day. He tells them to be humble, serve others in verse 35. He tells them to accept the innocent people, and he uses the image of a child. The lowly people, the innocent, accept them. And if you accept them, it's like you're accepting me. So pay attention to these things as I read through this text. And then he also will get to the warnings uh, to us in verse 42, warnings how we are not to cause other people to sin. It's a very serious warning there. Don't cause other people to stumble. And then um, the teaching to us about how we're to flee from our own <coughs> sins. So I'm going to read, starting at verse 30, all the way through the end of the chapter. From there, they went out and began to go through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know about it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they'll kill him. And when he's been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Sitting down... He called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. But whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. <coughs> But Jesus said, Do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, 
It would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck he'd been cast into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell, into the unquenchable fire. Verse 45, if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than, to, than having your two feet to be cast into hell. And then verse 47, if your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty with, what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Uh, I skipped verse 44 and verse 46, which is in some of your Bibles, because the earliest, probably most reliable manuscripts don't have that, and probably some of your versions don't even list those verses, so I just skipped those. Okay, so a lot of teaching here, and um, I just want to start with the first verse, <coughs> verse 30. They're going through Galilee, and he doesn't want anyone to know about it. Again, this is uh, pointing out the or reinforcing the idea and the concept that he is committing his time to the disciples. He doesn't want now all these crowds and distractions, especially because from here on out, he's really committing his teaching primarily to the disciples. And what he teaches them is about his crucifixion. And this is not the only time he says it. He said it before in, uh, at the end, or in the middle of chapter 8, uh, where he said that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders. And there, it's like the necessity. The Son of Man must suffer many things. That's what he taught in chapter 8. So the necessity of it. It is important. It is necessary that the Son of Man must suffer. And here, he sort of points to the certainty of it. All right? He is to be delivered into the hands of men. So just a little bit of a wrinkle on the way he presents it. But the point is, he's saying the same thing several times. And he'll say it again in chapter 10. And they don't understand it. We've already read that. They Even um, later in this book and the other Gospels, you see that they continually don't understand, even though he says it explicitly, I must suffer, I must die. They don't understand it. And in verse 32, when it says they did not understand the statement and they were afraid to ask him, we know why they were afraid to ask, because, probably. Why? Were they afraid to ask him about it? He might, he might mean exactly what he said. Well, yeah. <laughs> Right? So they didn't, they didn't want to accept it. They couldn't quite grasp that idea of their Savior dying. Yeah, that's the, that is the point. What else would you think they might have been scared to ask him what that meant? Yeah, so they're, they're hopeless, hopeless at that point. If he's dead, they, everything they have hoped for and thought about and expected over the last three years will disappear. And that is actually what happens when he's crucified, right? They don't, they're lost. Well, and they, they didn't believe at that point that he was going to raise from the dead. So they didn't want to believe the first part of what he was saying, that he was going to die. Right. Yeah, all these are true. There's actually a more proximate reason probably that they, did, they were scared to ask him. So, I mean, if you just go back, what happened to Peter when he said, no, no, this isn't going to happen? He was rebuked pretty soundly. Get behind me, Satan. You have your ideas ahead of, ahead of mine. So I think that's a large part of it, the, re the reason, because they, they heard what happened to Peter when he challenged that concept. Um, well, another thing, they might have been afraid that they were going to get killed. Yeah. In the same way. So in a sense, they, right, they, their humanity didn't want to believe it because what's going to happen to the leader is ultimately going to happen to them. And he actually later in this gospel tells them that is indeed what's going to happen. They'll suffer like he did. They'll drink the cup that he drank. In Luke's account of this verse, uh, he, he says, um, while everyone was marveling at what he was doing, he said to his <coughs> disciples, let these words sink into your ears. So Jesus saying, let, you know, let these sink in. It's serious. Let them sink into your ears. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And then Luke also says, but they did not understand this statement, and it was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it. So Luke says, not only did they not want to see it, not only were they dull in their heads, but actually 
God concealed it from them at that time for a reason. Any ideas why God might do that? Kind of, it's what you've always already said. Maybe they wouldn't be able to function too well if they saw that was where they were going. If this is where we're going to go and you're going to die, it may have distracted them from the ministry that Jesus still had planned for them. So, yes, I have here, imagine if they had complete clarity, they may not be able to continue because of this burden and grief that they're carrying on because this is going to happen to them soon. And Matthew actually does say, nevertheless, that uh, in Matthew 17, 23, he says, when they, and they killed him, Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they'll kill him, and he'll be raised. And they were deeply grieved. So, putting it all together, uh, they didn't have complete understanding. It was intentionally, in some ways, concealed from their understanding by God. Yet, they did understand enough, according to Matthew, that they were grieved about it. So, I, I think the best way to summarize it is they just didn't have complete understanding in it, but they had some insight into what he was saying. Okay, so they're afraid to ask. And then uh, let's move on to verse 33. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? So here's an example of Jesus. You know, he was probably walking ahead of them, and they're back there arguing with each other. Luke's account says they were argument. It says an argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. And it says, but Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child. So this scene uh, described by Luke says that uh, not only did Jesus maybe overhear what they're saying, but he knew because he's omniscient, he's God, he knew what they're thinking in their heart. And what are they thinking in their heart? Which one of us is the greatest? This is just after he says, I'm going to die. He says, which, <coughs> so they're thinking which one of them is the greatest. And this is leading us into the whole theme of this section, which is the pride of man is exemplified here by the disciples. <clears throat> They're thinking of themselves. They're thinking which one of us is going to be greatest, arguing among themselves as he just had been transfigured. Three of them saw that. They were told about it. He's doing miracles, casting out demons, and they're, they're continually obsessed, really, with which one of them is going to be the greatest. Um, in fact, I think, you know, they may have been stimulated by the idea that three of them had actually gone up to see the transfiguration. So the concept that while there's three sort of special disciples, the closest friends of Jesus, <coughs> have higher uh, status than the other ones. And that may have spurned on their argument. But I think clearly they were, um, it seems like they were jockeying for position among who's going to be the greatest in that group. Hence the teaching that's going to follow about servanthood. They're missing the point here. All oh, right, so they, they were um, convicted, right? When he asked them, what are you arguing about? They, yeah, their silence speaks to their, their conviction. It's like when a parent asks a child, what are you talking, you know, you zip it. They don't want to admit it. Yes, so I think their silence was convicting. And isn't that what we do even today, comparing ourselves with other people in order to build ourselves Yes, she says, you're always ahead of me. Yeah, so an application is we do the same thing among ourselves. That's part of a, a manifestation of our pride is us always wanting to compare ourselves to others and elevate ourselves. That, that is one of the manifestations of our pride, selfishness, pridefulness and selfishness, yes. And we'll get to that. Thank you. We'll get to some uh, application questions in a, a few minutes. Um, so Jesus knows what's in their heart. They're selfish. They're prideful. They're wanting to be the best. They don't understand yet this mission of his and his teaching on self-sacrifice. So what does he do in verse 35? It's a great image. Sitting down, he called the 12. So you just think the image. He sits down and he's, come, come here. And he's going to sit down and teach them what? He's going to sit down and teach them a few things you know, about their pride and about humility and about uh, servanthood. 
He says, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. So this is an interesting phrase. Um, I actually think you can interpret it two different ways. Uh, I think the best way to look at it is him saying to them, um, you know, condemning them for a selfish desire to be first. That's how I think is the best way to see this. If, so if you have this selfish desire, you, you are misplaced priorities, you're a selfish person, and you are willing and desiring to be first, right? Well, you're going to be last. And there's a lot of Proverbs that talk about that, what pride leads to destruction. And, um, you know, the prideful, haughty person, I can't remember the, but it's dishonorable, all right? There's destruction and dishonor for those who are prideful and, and haughty. So I think this could be a parallel description of that sentiment. If you're selfish and that's to be condemned, that is not right, you're, you're going to find out. The fruit of that is going to, you're going to be last. Any other way you think you can interpret that? Because a couple of commentators pointed this out to me. I don't think it would be totally wrong, but in the context of this, I think Jesus is teaching about the, the sinful pride. Anyone else have a... That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, over and over and over, he's showing them the opposite of what they're thinking is the way they have to act and think. Yep. And the Bible tells us God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Right. Thank you. So many verses. I've got a list of them later. Yes, yeah, so many verses, especially in Proverbs and Psalms, and you, he resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Another idea, actually, though, on this verse is he could be saying something different like this. Um, Okay, 12, if you really want to serve me, if you really want to, um, if you really have some sort of innate desire to be good, in other words, to be first, if you really want to be noble and righteous and good, um, then be a servant. So it may be an instruction to them a little bit different than what I said before. So he's saying, if, you, if there's something good in you, and if you have this innate desire to sort of be your best for the Lord or for something wholesome and good, then what I want you to do is be a servant. So I think you could look at it that way. Do you see the difference? It's, it's a little, one sort of a, a condemnation for sure. Another one might be sort of a, um, a wise teaching or an application of, of something that might be innately decent in them if they're thinking they want to be um, to, to be a, a, a noble person. Do you understand? But nevertheless, having said that, I, I think that the easiest, simplest application is, is that he's sort of condemning them, saying your selfish desires aren't going to work. If you keep continue pursuing that, then you're going to be last. And then he takes this child in verse 36, and he sets it before them. So he sits down, calls them together. If you want to be first, you'll be last. Takes a child, brings it, and it's probably Peter's child, I'm guessing. Maybe it's Peter's child because they're in Capernaum and they're in this house, which we think might be Peter's home. So maybe it's Peter's child. He sets it before them, <coughs> takes him in his arms, and he says, whoever receives a child like this in my name receives me. Whoever receives me does not only receive me, but him who sent me. So the image here is pretty clear that you know a child represents a believer. I think a child represents a believer, and a child represents other things too, right? Innocence, um, vulnerability, um, dependent, maybe naive. This is what children represent, correct? Um, humble, maybe, trusting person. So he's telling him the child is representing a believer. If you, believer, accept a child in my name, so like I would do, lovingly, kindly, helpfully, if you receive other believers like this, then you receive me. And not only me, but you receive God, the Father, right? So when you're kind to other Christians and charitable and receiving them warmly and kindly without guile, without right? Like, like you'd receive a child, 
then then you're receiving God. That's what he's saying here. If we're kind to Christians, we're kind to Jesus and we're kind to the Lord. So the way we treat other Christians is the way we treat the Lord, right? That's, I think, clearly what he's saying here. And then the opposite is true, too, which is, someone say it, if we are against another Christian, then you're against God, right? So the challenge to us is, well, first of all, prideful people will reject God in this way. You reject other Christians. You won't be charitable to them. You'll maybe assume the worst, right? So don't be that way. The way we treat Christians is the way we'll treat the Lord. So don't have thoughts against other Christians. Go ahead. Well, at least John got it because he writes in his uh, epistle, you know, if, if you don't love your brother who you have seen, how can you say that you love God who you have not seen? Right. Exactly. Yeah, there's any other verses that come to your mind? There's one really good one. I think we'll go to it in Matthew 25. But the, the point being, it, 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 think about it. And, and we do this actually before the Lord's Supper every time, right? We, you confess. You, are you holding any grudge against anybody? Go to that person. Ask for forgiveness, right? Um, but don't ever assume the worst about another believer. So in your mind, you don't have to tell us about it, but you can think of believers either in this church or in your workplace, you know, some believer that you sort of gets under your skin or, you know, you just don't always assume the best about them. That's something to be repented of because that believer, if you're rejecting them in any way, it's like you're rejecting Christ. So they're part of the body. They're part of Christ's body. So that's an opportunity for us to think hard on that. Probably family members. This is ironic, right, how your siblings... You tend to assume the worst about your siblings. I have this with my brother. We're twins, and I love him. But it's, it's something about the siblings that is difficult, right? And you can sometimes be so harsh to your siblings. So I had thought of that in the last couple of days. That is a person I just need to stop doing that with. And I know you all, you know what I'm saying, right? And there's other people who you're close to that you... Well, you grew up with yeah. him. Hmm? You grew up with him. So yeah. You had to sleep with him. <laughs> Yes. Right. But you get my point, right? I think this really brings it home and really challenge yourself that if, you, if you're harboring, if you have a, maybe it's your spouse. I hope not. And I hope it's not your sibling or your brother or someone you work with. But if you always sort of have this edge, then we should repent of it and consider that um, I'm not being charitable to that believer. I'm not being charitable to the Lord. Um, so a powerful verse to, to really hammer this concept home is Matthew 25. I'll read those. 10 or 15 verses. It's Matthew 25, verse 31. It's very familiar to you. Um, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he'll sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he'll separate them from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now, here's a, here's a part that's really relevant to what we're saying. Four, I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous will answer, Lord, uh, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly, I say to you, I mean, whenever he says truly, this is serious. Truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. So the same imagery here, the least, the child, the, the, the believer, representing as a child, the least, humble, small, maybe dirty, poor, Whatever, whatever you did it to them, a believer, you did it to me. Okay, then now here's the hard part. Then he'll also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? So you can sense their defense. 
no, 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 no. I didn't, I didn't see you like that. If I'd seen you, I would have done these things. I would have taken care of you, Lord. That's sort of the, what's going on here. Then he'll answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these brothers of mine, these believers, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So I think that highlights the point here, right? Really good parallel uh, section to describe what happens to us when we serve our brothers and sisters. We're serving God. And prideful people will reject God, and they'll reject other believers. Seven, right. <coughs> yep. Yep. I think for us, these verses are, you can never go wrong by humbling yourself and asking, Am I this way toward other believers? If you're repeatedly so, repent, brother and sister, me too. Repent of it. It's, it's evil. And if you continually demonstrate that, then you ought to ask yourself the really hard question. Am I one of them? Am I one of Christ's members? Because it doesn't seem like with my thoughts constantly against other believers, the Bible says I may not be, so repent. You know, you don't want him to say to you, like in Matthew 7, they go to him and, Lord, 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 we did all these things. He said, nope, depart, I never knew you. So, opportunity for us to take this seriously and repent of those attitudes. Any other thoughts on that? Okay, another uh, scene in verse 38. John says to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to prevent him because he was not following us. So, on the one hand, maybe John is just trying to bring clarity into who is his people and who is not, who, who are not his people. Uh, maybe he was just confused about what's going on. We don't recognize him, he's casting out demons, and we need to stop him. Um, but, I think in the context of the whole flow of this, uh, what's going on here is he's prideful and pride in our heart breeds this um, exclusivity, right? So we're prideful, we tend to be exclusive. We get in holy huddles and if someone is doing a good deed and casting out a demon, why would he instantly want to stop that? What, what is going on in John's mind? Well, probably it's just his pride and he's got this exclusive holy thought. He's the son of thunder, remember? I want to read that, actually. Go to Luke chapter 9, because this is in a similar context. You know, James and John were called the sons of thunder by Jesus, apparently. I th it's obvious because they were argumentative and powerful. And I think this, let's see, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Okay, Luke <laughs> chapter 9, verse 51. Uh, I mean, you, you really can't get a, a stronger description of their personality than this. And actually, this is a similar uh, parallel account after Jesus you know, talks about receiving a child in my name. Um, look at verse 49 of chapter 9, Luke. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. But Jesus said to him, Don't hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. So parallel teaching. But look at what Luke says. When the days were approaching for his ascension... He was determined to go to Jerusalem. Okay, this is right after this teaching. And he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. So, so they don't receive Jesus. What does John and James want to do? When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? <laughs> So it's not a very humble attitude, right? He, he, 
not at all. This is another manifestation of his pride, his self-righteousness. His, he is like God throwing a thunderbolt on people who reject the Lord. And um, so you can't defend him for defending the Lord in any way because Jesus rebukes him. He said, but he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what kind of spirit you're of. The Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives but to save them. And they went on to another village. So uh, that, I, I, that just um, validates, I think, what John's attitude was here, that he was self-righteous, prideful, exclusive club that he was in, and no one else really ought to be in it. And the question I have here, the disciples didn't know this man's inner thoughts, did they? I mean, they didn't recognize him, but why are they assuming he's not a believer? I mean, Jesus ministered to thousands of people at this point and saved thousands. And why are they assuming that, he's, that this person is not a believer? Well, it's because they're jealous and they're prideful and it wasn't of them. So self-centeredness is what's driving their questions. Don't be prideful. Don't be jealous. Uh, be charitable to other people doing things in Jesus' name that you don't recognize. have an open uh, posture toward other Christian groups, right? We ought to have an open mind to that. Um, any, any thoughts on that? I think that's what it's teaching. Don't, you know, we ought to be charitable to those who seem to be following the Lord Jesus. Other churches, other right denominations, I mean, we, we have to resist bad teaching, obviously, but there are other denominations that are Christians and don't agree with them on everything, but I think our attitude ought to always be charitable. And that's what this is teaching. Yeah. Right. Not even for God, but out of selfish ambition. Right. Not sincerely thinking to afflict me and my imprisonment. What then? Only, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. Mm-hmm. And in that I rejoice. So Paul was able somehow, even yeah. in really bad situations, to that God's going to use that. Yep. You know, I often think of, uh, you know, when you're talking about other churches, to use the donkey. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the donkey can be a prophet and speak God's yeah. truth. Then that's great. Yes, there's so many people. I guess I think of the television, some television guys that I really don't like at all. So some of them, anyway. That verse says that they're preaching it in what's the phrase? False pretense. Uh, they're still proclaiming Christ. So if they're proclaiming Christ, and if we don't like their inflections and their analogies and stuff, but they proclaim Christ, we ought to rejoice and be happy in it. Yep. In verse 28, you know, it struck me that John's not concerned with these poor people who have been taken over by demons. Very good. He's more concerned about his own status. Yeah, very good. That's a great point. I didn't think of that. So yeah, he's not even rejoicing with a demon the demons are cast out. He, he's worried about his own status and he's jealous. In verse 39, Jesus follows it up with that and says, don't hinder him for there's no one who will perform a miracle in my name. So Jesus basically saying, he actually is doing it in my name. He's a believer. Don't hinder him. No one will be able to do something in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. So he's saying the fruit, I think he's saying the fruit of a believer will be they will not be able to speak evil of me. They'll speak good of me eventually. Even if you don't know them, even maybe if it's not perfect, don't hinder him. Um, and I think this is, you could compare this in, uh, to the scene in Acts with the seven sons of this, the priest, the Sceva, how they were casting out demons. They weren't believers because remember the demons said, uh, I think Jesus I know and Paul I know, but I don't know who you are. And he throws them out. So those were, were false people. But I think Jesus is saying, don't hinder him. This, I, this is a believer. Um, it, and I think he has to be 
Mm-hmm. We are a Southern Baptist. Mm-hmm. But yet we are distinct in, with some certain features about our church in regards to yep. uh, attention and focus and piety of the Word of God and the teaching of the Word that's traditional. Mm-hmm. As we do our Bible studies, our, our worship services. And from that, it does uh, affect our philosophy of ministry, our mm-hmm. methods of ministry. And yep. it sets us apart. And sometimes we're criticized for I think it's a great point, and I think very practical. So if, if we have a new person that's coming into our church, you may not know their background, where they come from, what their sentiments are about certain doctrines. If we are overly harsh against a certain denomination, that's what you're saying, right? That, is, that might just turn them off. There's no need to be that way. That's what we're trying to say. Be real sensitive and careful. Um, don't hinder him. Because soon enough, he'll be saying good things about me, so don't, don't hinder them. So we have to be careful. I personally have to be careful with that, and probably a lot of us, not to be so critical of other stripes. And, and you know, we should have some humility in ourselves to, to say, you know, are we doing things right? Are, mm-hmm. there, are there some folks out there who maybe have things more correctly than we do, more pleasing to the Father than, right. than, than we've come up with? Right. How many of you have changed your view on something important? Probably all of us, right? In the Bible, certain teachings. So, yes, I think we get the point. Great teaching. Thanks. And the thing that should make us most humble of of all is that, you know, our salvation, you know, we believe here is not from us. Mm -hmm. That's right. It's not from us. It's from the Lord who saved us. Yep. So don't be prideful. This is another teaching on how not, why we're not to be prideful. He who's not against us is for us. If someone, go ahead. Sorry, I, I just think it's such a, it's a struggle here. This place causes a lot of temptation for me because it's just like, this is such a good church, and it's so easy for me to be like, oh, we don't do this. We, we do expository preaching. I'm like, everybody else and we're just mm-hmm. like I just get this feeling sometimes like we're this church on a hill you know just look at us we're just this shining and um, I just uh, it's such a pride it's a, definitely a pride that I, I need to combat in, in my you know mm-hmm. my little hometown church back home you know I just I think negatively about it a lot now and it's just like that's such a mm-hmm. something I need to reject and it's like it, this place causes the which is a good thing to, I mean, not a good thing, but it's such a good church, and it's why it causes temptation for me. Mm-hmm. This is like, we just need to love, you know, I need, I need to just love other churches. It's where we'll Christ is proclaimed, you know. They don't have perfect theology. We don't have perfect theology either, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we do a lot of things right here, but it's just like, for me personally, it's a big temptation to have pride. Yeah, well, thanks for sharing that. I, I think it probably resonates with a lot of us in the church. I know so many of you and I came from these little churches. John, you know, grew up in these little churches and they don't have it all right from our point of view, but they love the Lord, they love each other and uh, praise God. And we need to remember where we... Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. Just sort of on the flip side of that, that's why holding my faith secure, knowing that I come to a place that teaches good Mm-hmm. Um, and I've done 
Absolutely. We don't have to accept their teaching, but if they're a believer, I think the clear teaching of this lesson is we are charitable to them, uh, we love them, and what we show to them is like we're showing that to the Lord. That's right. Yeah, and through our words, too, correcting false teaching. But I, I feel like the attitude has to be right. If it, well, humility, right. And graciousness and kindness to those, especially if they're proclaiming to be a believer, always. It's okay. We cry in here a lot. It's fine. <laughs> you guys, you guys, you you feel so welcome. And I thank you for that. Great. The love of Christ really shows the church. Hmm. Because I've been in so much pain for so long. And I came through. And the theology was not correct. And I had this plan for God to send me somewhere. Well, thank you. Praise God. That that's great testimony. So, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Great. Me too. Please. <laughs> the verse that Paul purposely said to the Corinthians, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. Huh. Very good. Where is that? Second Corinthians ten twelve. So I guess saying those who are Comparing them with each other, they don't understand anything. Yep. Yep. Every single believer is in a process, right? Right. Once you have arrived, then you can be proud of that. <laughs> Thank you. Amen. That's right. Mm-hmm. 
Right. Yeah. Excellent point, I think. Excellent, because uh, it brings out that with doctrinal issues or something like that, where you know clearly your separate uh, understanding, our pride can think no. You've got to do the book I want. You've got to listen to my argument, and I will convince you. But it's a word that does it. So I'm glad you embrace that. Say, yeah, I'll study the Bible with you because the Bible's true, and it'll convict and challenge and change. Yeah, it's a great example. Thank you. So much good feedback. Okay. Anything else? Mm-hmm. They taught enough truth for us to be saved. Yeah, that's right. And we need to be grateful for that. Mm-hmm. And we also need to be praying for them. Yep. That good, have good teachers. Yep, very good. Um, okay. Okay. Uh, a little bit more here because it's so rich, I think. Um, so the bottom line here, Mark 940, he who's not against us is for us. I think that can summarize a lot of what we said, right? They're not against us, they're for us. Um, if someone's not hostile to the Bible, we should consider them as friends, right? If they're not hostile, we should be friends, right? And then I have here, by the way, though, how should we treat someone who is openly hostile to the gospel? And before I answer it my way, I know I, I, there's no simple answer to this, but I think there's a couple examples in the New Testament. If someone's openly hostile to the gospel, how, how do we handle those people? Anybody have any thoughts? Like Saul of Tarsus. How is that? Well, he's going to, you know, have the Christians dragged yes. you know, before them. Yes. Yeah, I guess my question is, if we see people who are speaking directly against the teaching of the Bible, how are we to engage those people? What are we to do? Before I... Go ahead. The first thing we can do is just pray that God would soften their hearts and open yeah. their eyes. We can't do anything. Yep. And I'm talking in the realm of ideas and dialogue and uh, discussion of the truths of God's Word. If someone's hostile and against it, so first pray for them. Second, we speak the Word of truth. And I think, too, so we resist the temptation to do too much. If you look at Acts 19 and look at how Paul dealt with people who were openly hostile to his preaching. Acts. I think this is, okay, there's no perfect answer, but here's an example that is so helpful to me. Um, Acts 19 Uh, let's see here. Okay, a verse. Well, I'll start at verse six. When Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. They began speaking with tongues and prophesying. They were in all about twelve men. And he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months. So he, he's speaking out the truth of God's word boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, Speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. I think there's a time when you just, you just stop engaging people who are intentionally attacking God's word. And he withdrew because if you think about it, his ministry in the school of Tyrannus, no doubt, was a lot more fruitful 
than spending his hours arguing with people who are hostile to the word. So resist the temptation, I think Paul gives us an example, to continually engage in people that we would call hostile to the word. There's a time when you just say, it's your belief, okay? And then you just preach the truth maybe elsewhere. And then it says, uh, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia yeah. heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So in other Thank words, you. Yeah, yeah. maybe these people who are resistant are not the target yeah. of the word, but maybe they're there to, to sh you know, sharply mm -hmm. contrast the truth from error yeah. for the consumption of others. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that last phrase sort of puts the exclamation point on the point, which is, he went to the school of Tyrannus and all this Asia region heard, right? So, yes. So be careful. I guess the bottom line with that, be careful that we don't let the flesh and the pride take over and continue to do this over people who are hostile. Very good. Just be careful that we don't let our pride be the main driving force for our witnessing. Uh, it's 10.05, Randy. Um, I've got a... Uh, we only got through about half of what I wanted to get through. There's a whole other section that I want to... Um, <laughs> I don't want to slap that, but uh, I think I'll save it for next week because um, it's, it's more, it's amplifying pride and going through some of the more texts in the Bible. Pride is the main sin, really. And I think Jesus tells us this so powerfully here and then finishes it again when we get to chapter 10 with the high mark of the book. Son of man didn't come to be served, but to serve. Give his life a ransom for many. So that's like the antidote to pride is recognizing our servanthood and our humility. So I think we'll just pick up next week talking about pride, going through some different verses in the Bible that describe that for us, and then probably try to finish the chapter next week. Any other thoughts or questions or prayer requests that we need to know about? Any announcements from church, Randy, that I need to amplify? So volunteer, interest at all in volunteering, 4 o'clock at King's Academy. All right. Good. Thank you. We'll see you next week.